Good morning. Hey, Scott made a, an announcement concerning prayer and, uh, and moving forward in the COVID tiers. One of the things we've begun to do at our Tuesday morning prayer meeting is move from the patio indoors. So if meeting outside in 45 degree weather to pray was not your thing, uh, we'll see it Tuesday morning at 6.30, 45 minutes in the sanctuary, a great time of prayer. Well, this is our third Sunday on the road with Jesus, as artistically portrayed for us by Kip Henderson uh, here on the cover of our bulletin. A road that reminds us that our Lord was a man of sorrows who emptied himself of his divine prerogative as explained a couple of weeks ago to us by uh, Jackson Randall, and who was acquainted with grief, as described to us last Sunday by Kenny Clark. This morning we'll see that he was tempted by sin. Over the next two weeks, this road will take us to the cross on Good Friday, making, uh, or rather marking the culmination of all of Jesus' sorrow, and then to the empty tomb on Easter Sunday, marking the culmination of all of our joy. So that's the way ahead. Again, this morning we consider the fact that Jesus was tempted by sin. And may his spirit help us as we do. Temptation. That internal gravitational pull to think or to say or to do something that is just plain wrong. Temptation. It's something into which we fall less and less and are being pulled more and more. Pulled through the TV screen, which for a generation now has tempted us to Obey your thirst and drink this brand of soda. Uh, just do it and buy this brand of tennis shoe. Have it your way and order this custom burger. Color your hair with this since you're worth it. Eat, eat your dinner here since there are no rules, just right. Vacation here because what happens here stays here. More recently, we're being uh, pulled into temptation through our computer screens, which are increasingly littered with popular clickbait and personalized ads created by clickstream data, which are the web pages that you've visited online. Search data, the subjects that you've looked up on your computer. Purchase data, the products that you bought online, and profile data, the information that you have volunteered to the international community by way mostly of social media. All those ingredients are used to create a virtual cocktail that appeals to that which is sensual in you as opposed to that which is sensible. Temptation. You struggle with it. I struggle with it. In fact, I was going to tell you some of the ways over the years in which I've struggled. They're all written here on my page. I thought better of it. 
could tell you what I struggled with all through the 80s. The temptation with which I struggled to assuage my grief after my brother died. Temptation to which I was attracted after I was inexplicably abandoned by a close friend. I'll tell you what any of those temptations are if you'd like to see me afterwards. The point is, uh, you can have a terminal degree in ministry, but we all struggle with temptation. Temptation. It's something to which more than a few of us have already succumbed this morning, having been enticed to think or to say or to do something that was privately indulgent or relationally hurtful or physically harmful or maybe all of the above or maybe none of the above. And that temptation to which you surrendered may have been something you've never done before or something you've done a million times. But in either case, you don't want to do it again until you do it again and again and again and again, confirming the truth of the age-old lines, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Temptation. You, you love it and you hate it. You, you love it because the object of your temptation is a great relief. You wouldn't be tempted to it unless it was. But you hate it because it, it affords you great shame. So that over time you begin thinking of yourself like the dyspeptic dog that eats his own vomit in Proverbs 26. Or the sow that's been cleaned up only to return to her filthy sty in 2 Peter 2. And you begin identifying with Paul's words to the church at Rome. For I don't understand my own actions. For I, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Or his words to the church at Galatia about the conflicting desires between one's flesh and God's spirit that keep you from doing the things you want to do. Galatians 5.17. Temptation. <laughs> if this isn't the classic setting in which to address it, I don't know what is. I mean, we're all at church and I'm preaching on what else does a preacher preach? <laughs> and, and you're listening with what else do you struggle? And I say, Jesus can help you. And you think, well, yeah, but that's what you're supposed to say. And I want Jesus to help. But my experience tells me otherwise. So I'm not sure Jesus can help me. Which leads me to ask you this question. When you're tempted, to what kind of Jesus do you look for help? When you're tempted, to what kind of Jesus do you look for help? Is it Jesus as you imagine him to be? 
like a rabbit's foot who responds to persistent attention and rubbing. I'll even attach a picture of him to my keychain and carry it around all the time. Is, is it Jesus like the evening star? I wish I may, I wish I might have this wish I wish tonight. Or is it Jesus like a Greek God who reacts to you according to his present mood? I'll even deny myself something tonight in an effort to court his favor. Or is the kind of Jesus to whom you look for help in temptation, Jesus, not as you imagine him to be, but as he's revealed himself to be? The Jesus of time and space, the Jesus of human history, the Jesus of the Bible. See, if it's the former, then Jesus can be of no help to you because that's not who he is. That Jesus is more like you and me. He, he, he responds more like you and I do to things, cajoling, favors, appeasement. But if it's the latter then Jesus can be of immense help to you because that's who he really is. And in light of that, I want to especially bear down on two things this morning. The first is why the Jesus of the Bible can help you in your temptation and then how the Jesus of the Bible can help you in your temptation. So let's begin with why the Jesus of the Bible can help you in your temptation. To begin, he can help you in your temptation because he himself underwent temptation. Uh, to be sure, he is the son of God, but he's also the son of man. He, he's identified with us and our temptations. So Jesus gets it. He, he's walked the proverbial mile in your shoes. But Jesus didn't face temptation like, like Superman faces bullets, you know, bouncing off him as he uh, marches forward. No, rather Jesus endured temptation. So to begin, Jesus endured real temptation. He himself suffered when tempted, Hebrews 2.18. So Jesus felt the pain. He took the blows. Further, Jesus endured various temptations. In every respect, he has been tempted as we are, Hebrews 4.15. So Jesus felt your brand of pain. And he continues to feel it as well. Finally, Jesus endured persistent temptation. Think of it. How did Jesus' ministry begin? It began in the desert, laboring under the weight of temptation, which in some were the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. That was the kind of temptation or temptations he endured out in the desert. How did his ministry end? It ended in the garden, laboring under the weight of temptation and praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He didn't want to do it. But not my will, Jesus said, but yours 
be done. So Jesus endured real, various, and persistent temptations. But Jesus not only endured them in part, he endured them in full, in total. Jesus endured the full force of temptation. Now, how, how, how can that be? I mean, he did have a leg up. He was Jesus. Well, consider the fact that Jesus was like us in every respect, Hebrews 2.17, in every respect, so that the absence of sin didn't make him any less human. The absence of sin made Jesus even more human, the true and better Adam, as we so often sing. So because he never succumbed to any temptation, Jesus felt the full force of every one. Some of you may recall Hurricane David that uh, took a chunk out of Florida, Florida but devastated the Caribbean back in the late summer of 1979. Well, um, during Easter week, no, I'm sorry, Thanksgiving week of that year, I was part of a team that flew down to the Dominican Republic to help rebuild the seaside village of Boca de Nigua. And upon arriving in the capital city of Santo Domingo, I remember we deplaned right onto the tarmac, and I was immediately impressed by two things. First was the humidity. <laughs> I'd never been out of the country, and I'd never been in a tropical climate. And let's just say the air was heavy. <laughs> a friend of mine who grew up in uh, San Clemente said of the Midwest, it's like living inside of a giant lung just hot and wet, uh, to the 10th power down in the Caribbean. So uh, the, the humidity was um, heavy. The second thing I noticed were the palm trees, a few of which, very few, were still standing, most of which were snapped at the base and littered the landscape, like I, I remember thinking, so many toothpicks. And at the time I thought, Man, those trees were hammered. But as they say in the NFL, upon further review, uh, I thought otherwise as a couple of things occurred to me. Uh, first, the fallen trees weren't hammered at all. Because as the Category 5 winds of the torrential rains began bearing down on them, bam, they gave in. <laughs> they fell over. They laid down. The winds and the rain just blew right over them. The second thing that occurred to me was that the few trees still standing were in fact the ones that got hammered because they endured the full force of the Category five, uh, 5 winds and remained upright. They endured the full force of the torrential rains and remained planted as the other trees gave in, they held up throughout the entire storm. And that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Jesus felt the full force of every temptation. You and I are like fallen trees. We lay down again and again and again. Reminds me of the line 
yeah, I can quit smoking. It's easy for me. I've done it a million times. But Jesus didn't give in. He withstood the full force and fury of every temptation so that he is not only able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, Hebrews 4, 15, he is able to help us in our weaknesses, Hebrews 4, 16. In fact, a couple of chapters prior to that, we're told because he suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 2.18. So Jesus, not as you imagine him to be, but as he really is, is able to help. Jesus can help. Who else would you rather have on your side? Nobody. And that takes us right to the second point. And that is how the Jesus of the Bible can help you in temptation. Remember the uh, uh, popular wristband, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Well, truth be told, there's so little written about the life of Jesus that we don't exactly know Jesus, what Jesus would do in response to most things. But When it comes to what would Jesus do in response to temptation, we know exactly what he would do because we know exactly what he did. And that, and in that way, he helps you and he helps me respond to temptation. So what did Jesus do? Well, when Jesus was in the wilderness, how did he respond to the temptations of the adversary? Did he do anything other than what we ourselves can do? Or did he do anything that we can't do? Like, did he pull out the God card and say, sorry, Satan, can't do that. I'm God. Don't mess with me in that way. Or pull out his God guns. Boom, 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 boom. Take down the adversary with his God bullets, which only he has. Or, or did he rely on angels to rescue him from trouble, which in fact is what the adversary tempted him to do? In each and every case, the answer is no. He did none of those things. Rather, Jesus responded to, them, to temptation in the same exact way he expects you and I to respond. By abiding in God's spirit in which he had just been baptized, And by relying on God's word, which is the sword of the spirit. Abiding in God's spirit. Not a program, but a person. Relying on God's word. Not a book, per se, but lively oracles. Living words, as it's put in the book of Acts. In that way, Jesus exemplified the perfect response to temptation and thereby helps us in responding to temptation as well. So what can we learn by relying on the scripture and abiding in the spirit that will help us respond to temptation? Well, first, we can learn to think well about temptation. Think well about temptation. Temptations 
are necessary. Matthew 18, 7, it is necessary that temptations come. They were necessary for Jesus. Consider this, that in the book of Mark, we see that it was actually the Spirit who drove Jesus, following his baptism, out into the wilderness, where after 40 days and at his weakest, Jesus was tempted by Satan. But Jesus understood that when I am weak, I am strong. And by way of employing the word and the spirit, the devil left him. Matthew 4.11. In this way, as well as others, Jesus actually learned obedience from the things that he suffered. Hebrews 5.8. Well, just as temptations were necessary for Jesus, they are necessary for us as well. A friend of mine puts it like this. Temptations are good for burning the fat off our hearts so that we're more tender toward God. 17th century Scottish pastor Samuel Rutherford, who knew a thing or two about trials and temptations, said this, I find it to be most true that the greatest temptation out of hell is to live without temptations. (laughs) Let me read that again. I find it to be most true that the greatest temptation out of hell is to live without temptations. He goes on, if my water should stand, they would rot. Faith faith is the better for the sharp winter storm in its face. Grace withers without adversity. The devil is but God's master fencer to teach us how to handle our weapons. Charles Spurgeon, who famously dealt with the darkness of depression and the temptation to despair, began to view it all as a grace. He said, I have learned to kiss the wave that slaps me against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the wave that slaps me against the rock of ages. Of ages. In other words, this thing that I thought was driving me from Christ is actually pulling me, pushing me toward Christ. As we think well about temptation, we're better suited to respond well to temptation. So here are four ways to respond to temptation as found in God's Word. Number one, wear God's armor. Wear God's armor, especially since it affords you the ability to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. All the flaming darts. Even the ones that he has mounted and aimed and is fired right at you. God's armor can extinguish those. Second, resist the enemy. (laughs) Especially since... In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, as did Jesus, Hebrews 12, 4. Because he did and because he prevailed, we are able to resist the devil and he will flee, James 4, 7. Number three, fight the enemy. Fight 
the enemy. We would prefer not to fight. I would prefer not to fight. As a famous one of my generation, even of my age, once said, I'm a lover, not a fighter. And that's me. But we're commanded to wrestle against the enemy, Ephesians 6, to destroy strongholds, 2 Corinthians 10, to kill in us what comes from him, Colossians 3. David White runs a ministry dedicated to uh, helping people who find themselves uh, uh, chronically in the teeth of temptation. And this is what David White says, there is no growth in holiness without a fight. We will arrive in heaven sweaty, caked with blood and dust, with the sword still in our hand. This is the path that Jesus walked before us. Number four, escape the enemy. Escape. Especially since every temptation comes with a back door. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. You see, in our economy, in our way of thinking, temptation equals entrapment. But in God's economy, temptation equals escape. It's, it's a theater for him to prove himself again and again as faithful and strong and reliable and one in whom we can place our confidence and by whom we can grow. But you've got to look for the escape. Now, the... the <laughs> these things are not easy. In fact, it can be a great discouragement to hear all of these things because we want easy. We want set it and forget it. We want no fuss, no muss. We want three easy steps. We want a brochure with a plan or a book with a philosophy or a, a weekend away where we can read it and absorb it and then just do it. That's what we want. Now, let me just quickly say, don't read into what I'm saying here. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not dissing recovery programs. I'm not uh, dissing uh, treatment centers, uh, the field of psych. Those are all common graces. They all have their place. I'm a beneficiary of, of the ministrations of a psychologist and then a psychiatrist. So I'm all for it. I get it. But that's not in God's word, what he's given us. Again, common grace, God's special grace is not a plan, but a person. And it's the person of Jesus who comes to not only help us think well about and respond well to temptation, but to help us overcome it by destroying its source, which is our own rebellion, and that he did on the cross. I can remember a point in my life where I just had to run up the white flag and say to myself, you know, you're going to live with this temptation for the rest of your life because there's nothing you can do. Except, as I began relying on the Word and abiding in the Spirit, I found that it had less and less of a hold on me to the point 
at which I was sitting on the front porch of my house one night, my mid-30s, and I thought to myself, you are more of a man than you thought you'd ever become in your whole life. Nothing I've done, no program or plan, all Christ. In fact, to remember the cross and Jesus' sacrifice is the best way to combat temptation. Because you have to think of it in the shadow of what he's done for you. So, especially today, as we come to the table, we're going to remember the body and the blood of Jesus. And thereby affirm that he, in fact, does break the power of canceled sin. And he sets the prisoner free. So, if you believe that, then this bread and this cup are for you. If you don't believe that, then this is not for you. If you believe that, but you're not living like it, then at least on this Sunday, this isn't for you. But if you've never believed, but as of this morning, you, you, you do believe, then what better way to acknowledge the forgiveness of your sins, the, the absolution of your guilt, and the otherwise impossible taming of your temptations than by taking the blood and the bread. That didn't happen all at once. It occurs over time, but it happens. In fact, as we take the elements this morning, this is what I suggest. As you take each element, as it were, from Christ, why don't you, in exchange for his body, return a temptation. And, and in exchange for the cup, return to him a temptation. Because in light of what he's given to us, in light of what he's given to you, this is exactly what he wants in return. <laughs>